This episode of Engineering Matters was made in partnership with Fugro, and it takes us back to the dawn of the new millennium, to a time when the first offshore wind turbines were being built in UK waters, and a crane driver called Bobby Hazel was called in to use a Demag 1200 ringer crane mounted on a jackup barge to do something that no offshore operator in the UK had ever done before. Well, it was big, but because it was the first generation ones, it wasn't overly massive, if you know what I mean. I think the actual nacelle only weighed about 50 tonnes. Uh, I think the tower's knocked out about 30 tonnes apiece. The monopile we put in, uh, yeah, I put the monopile in first, Google's Seacore. They grouted the monopile in. Then we left that for, I don't know, probably a week or so, I think. And then we just uh, built it up from there, you know, which was one tower followed by another tower. Then the, uh, the nacelle on the top. And then we put the blades on. I picked them up as a, uh, as a pair. Uh, we called them bunny ears. And as a pair, we stuck that right on the end of the nose cone, followed by one single blade. And, and, and that was it. That was job done all over then. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And when Bobby Hazel was sailing into the North Sea off the coast of Blythe in Northumberland in 2000, he had no idea that this pilot offshore wind project of just two Vestas V66 turbines, each with a 2 megawatt capacity, would herald the start of the UK's journey to becoming the world leader in offshore wind. I believe we currently account for 40% of the world's operating offshore wind projects. This is Bezad Ayoub, a senior analyst at Renewable UK who tracks offshore wind data for projects all over the world. He explains that after this pilot project at Blythe, it was action from the UK government in 2002 that really kick-started the industry. They set out a way for offshore wind projects to essentially receive subsidies. These were this was a support programme which was known as the Renewable Obligations. And what it did is it placed an obligation on retail electricity suppliers to source a gradually increasing percentage of its electricity from renewable sources. And in return, the power producers received a fixed price for each unit of electricity that they generated over the next 20 years. This was critical. Offshore wind was new and came with risks and uncertainty, which investors did not like. But they did like the guaranteed 20-year income stream introduced through the new renewables obligation. Around the same time, the body responsible for the UK coastline, Crown Estates, gave permission for wind farms to be built on the seabed, each site allowing up to 30 turbines. Much was learned from these early wind farms, which were concentrated around the north coast of Wales, from the Rill Flats up to Barrow and as far as Robin Rig in Scotland. On the east coast, these early sites were located as far south as the Kentish Flats and Gunfleet Sands and further north at Scroby Sands, Lynn and Inner Dowsing off the coast of Lincolnshire. For the next raft of projects, Crown Estates made larger sites available, but concentrated these in three locations. Liverpool Bay, the Thames Estuary and the Wash. And as the size of the sites grew, so did the turbines. On the pilot project at Blythe, each turbine produced two megawatts of power, enough for around 3,000 homes every year. But by the time the second round of wind farms were launched, the turbine size had almost doubled to 3.6 megawatts. 
and since then they've just kept on growing. Wind farms being planned today consist of enormous 12 megawatt turbines. These are six times the capacity of the earlier technology and more than treble the height as the turbine blades have grown to create more energy than ever before. And we'll explore what this means for the industry in more detail in the second part of this two-part podcast. One of the side effects of this growth was the economy of scale that comes with expansion. But it was over another decade before the industry really saw the price of electricity generated by offshore wind plummet. In 2015, the CFD auctions were a bit of a game changer because it made developers compete with one another and helped bring prices down. Developers were pitted against each other, bidding for government guarantees of a price per megawatt hour. The winners were those that could deliver the offshore wind energy at the lowest price. As a result of this competitive arrangement, prices have nosedived as developers and their supply chains have worked hard to deliver projects more cost-effectively than ever before. Since that first auction, the price of uh, offshore wind projects has fallen from £114 per megawatt hour, which was the winning bids in the 2015 round one CFDs, down to £39.65 per megawatt hour, which was the most recent price for CFDs. Today, the CFD auctions and the early rounds of offshore wind have resulted in around 8.5 gigawatts of capacity being installed in the UK waters. And more recently, awards through the second round of contracts for difference auctions are set to see another 5.1 gigawatts come online by 2024. The third round is bringing even more. So this third round has basically resulted in offshore wind being one of the cheapest forms of electricity in the UK, um, apart from onshore wind. And this means more interest from investors and developers and lower electricity prices for people like you and me. 5.5 gigawatts worth of projects have now won subsidies and these are expected to reach final investment decisions in 2020. Construction would then start in 2023. So that'll be an extra 5.5 gigawatts on top of the 5.1 gigawatts I mentioned earlier. So we're looking at around 18, 19 gigawatts by about 2026, 2077, when these projects will be fully commissioned. And this is not all. In March 2019, the government announced a landmark agreement called the Offshore Wind Sector Deal, calling for industry to install a total of 30 gigawatts by 2030. In return for guaranteeing future subsidies through contracts for different rounds, the industry agreed to continue reducing costs and investing in the supply chain. But as we'll hear in part two, Boris Johnson's new government has just set an even higher target and challenged industry to build 40 gigawatts by 2030, which won't be easy. At the moment, I think the UK has about a potential of 37 gigawatts overall if all projects are built. And it all began with two wind turbines in the northeast. So at the time, they were the largest and most powerful offshore wind turbines in the world. This is Patrick Rainey. Offshore Logistics Manager with RWE Renewables, which was part of the consortium that originally developed the Blythe Offshore Wind Farm. The site's located about a kilometre off the coast of Blythe in uh, Northumberland. Um, It was built in late 2000, exported first power to the uh, grid in early 2001. For any offshore wind turbine, the starting point is to collect data about the site, a site survey, and this is where Fugro came in. Fugro worked in the oil and gas industry right from its early days in the 1970s where we developed a number of uh, seabed operated devices for uh, pushing our comb penetrometer technology into the seabed. 
This is Tony Hodgson, Regional Strategic Sales Manager for Europe and Africa, and the cone penetrometers that he mentioned have been used for soil investigations since the 1950s. These steel rods with a conical tip are pushed into the ground to gather geotechnical information, first measuring the resistance of the ground to the insertion of the penetrometer giving the soil bearing capacity. Today's penetrometers can measure a range of properties from poor water pressure to magnetometry, giving a range of information about the seabed. And we design drilling systems to take samples from the seabed to test in our laboratories. This is really what the offshore wind industry needed. And in the early days of offshore wind, um, we were able to use our knowledge and experience from oil and gas to help the developers. Many of the developers in the first phase of offshore wind were relatively inexperienced on for offshore. So our knowledge and experience of working in the marine environment was very important to them and they accepted and uh, appreciated our experience and able, we were able to help them in the early days. Much of the work focused on gathering data about seabed conditions and the wind profile. What we call site characterization so that is effectively doing the initial site survey so that can be a geophysical or a geotechnical survey where we collect a lot of different types of data, merge those data sets together and provide the client with a, a, what we call a ground model, which is an integrated uh, data uh, map of the seabed and the subseabed. So they can then look at that, see where their uh, challenges are in terms of uh, designing and installing foundations and power cables. And after undertaking this work at Blythe, Tony estimates the company's been involved in 95% of the UK's offshore wind farms. Such data is now more critical than ever, as developers race to build more offshore turbines than ever before in order to meet the government's 40 gigawatt target. Having worked at Field Grove for 43 years, Tony remembers doing the site characterisation at Blythe, which began with two boreholes taken from the seabed. One borehole at each of the uh, wind turbine locations. These went down to 20 metres and enabled Fugro to determine a bedrock profile. And that enabled the foundation pile to be designed based on uh, a drilled and grouted technique. So essentially the, the bedrock strength was uh, uh, tested by uh, in situ testing and by laboratory analysis. And then based on those test results, the uh, drilled and grouted pile could be designed accordingly. So this single pile, or monopile, buried 18 metres deep into the seabed and measured 3.5 metres in diameter, became the foundation for the UK's first ever offshore wind turbines. Fugro used its experience in marine drilling to install the country's first ever offshore wind foundation in the rocky seabed. Fugro has been involved in large diameter drilling for many years prior to this particular project and our speciality has been in large diameter drilling in the marine environment. So we've been involved in a number of port and harbour projects and some uh, bridges where we've used our drilling technology to drill pile sockets into the seabed. So for us, it was just a, a new application for proven technology. Back in 2000, the drilling speeds for driving in the steel monopiles was much slower than it is now, and increasing drilling speed is a key objective for Fugro as it seeks to support developers in bringing down the cost of offshore wind even further. 
the drilling speeds at the time were relatively modest. I would say probably in the order of uh, four to five hundred millimeters an hour uh, drilling speed. So you know to drill socket down to eighteen meters was taking us uh, you know up to tw- nine to twelve hours to actually drill into the uh, seabed. Uh, we're actually now doing things much faster and our new design drills are aiming at uh, drilling speeds of maybe 10 times faster than that. So that's really exciting for the future. So, uh, uh, But at that time, you know, the drilling speed was relatively modest. After the socket was drilled and the steel pile in place, it was grouted in and left for several days to achieve the required strength. Then it was time for Bobby and the construction team to come and build the turbines, which were 66 metres tall. The pile penetration into the seabed was roughly 18 metres. Then there's a a water depth uh, range between 5.8 and 11.9. Depending on the tide. So that's roughly in the order of uh, uh, 27 metres total length of the pile. And then the transition piece sits on top of the uh, the pile and then that connects to the tower and the turbine sits on top of the tower. So uh, the tower itself was uh, in the order of 66 metres uh, tall up to the, uh, the n- nacelle where the uh, wind turbine and the blades are obviously uh, uh, operating from. And there they sat, providing clean energy to the UK for almost 20 years. But as Sir Isaac Newton said... What goes up must come down. So in about um, 2017, um, we started to look at end-of-life opportunities for the site. Was there repowering? Was there reuse? Um, The life extension options? Um, We also at that time were investigating the, the, the decommissioning, sort of trying to plan for that. And in 2018, the decision was made to tender a contract to dismantle the UK's first ever offshore wind turbines. So throughout the course of uh, 2018, we ran a competitive tender process for the decommissioning works and uh, Fugro were were obviously successful. Um, We awarded them a a contract in, I think it was October 2018, um, with a plan to to complete the decommissioning works in in 2019. It was a really nice... uh, symmetry to the project with you guys having installed it uh, sort of 20 years ago and i believe it was the uh, the same crane driver that came back to uh, to do the decommissioning works in 2019. bobby hazel was back in the north sea which is also where he was when we chatted to him 20 years later but further south this time he was near great yarmouth he remembers the turbines being in good condition when he took them down it came apart pretty good actually like all, all the bolts weren't rusty nothing like that everything was good but that didn't mean it was going to be a breeze. First stage of the uh, the decommissioning is to take down the uh, turbines. But first, the decommissioning team needed to get out to site. It's uh, quite an interesting site. Interesting or challenging? We, we touched on it earlier there with the uh, the bedrock seabed um, that adds quite a lot of difficulties for for vessel access. Um, Fugro have one of the very few vessels that has uh, pin piles um, on the end of their legs rather than uh, spud cans. So that makes jacking up on on sort of a rocky seabed possible. 
Yeah, spud cans generally are used to uh, spread the weight of the jack up. In this particular case where you have a hard rocky seabed, then spud cans are not necessary. In fact, they can cause more issues because if you have an uneven seabed and a spud can trying to sit onto the uh, uneven rocky surface uh, you know you run the risk of damaging the spud can and and also you know maybe bending the legs of the jack up platform because the load isn't applied evenly whereas with a a pin pile which is just a single uh, a point on the end of the actual uh, leg of the jack up itself which is a circular uh, similar to a pile really it 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 then just the pin just penetrates into the rock and then you're able to stand up without any uh, any issues regarding uh, leg stability so we mobilized Excalibur in Port of Blythe this is Tony Stevens, Food Growth Project Manager for the Decommissioning, which began on site in April 2019. And the Excalibur is the 60 metre long, 32 metre wide, 1,000 tonne capacity pin pile barge that his colleague Tony Hodgson was talking about. The, the biggest challenge is not so much weight, biggest issue was actually finding the tools, because they're actually old machines now, not used. The biggest challenge we found was actually finding a company who has the correct tools, um, existing tools in, in their stock to be able to come to site. Otherwise, we're looking at quite an expensive design and fabrication of, of new tools to, to, to remove the blades and the nacelle and the, um, the tower section. Fortunately, Fugro found a small specialist supplier based in the Netherlands that had the bespoke equipment needed to take apart the turbines. Yeah, so the, the, um, the first thing is the, the North Tower we started on. That took us probably uh, two shifts, I think, 48 hours to take down to so three blades off, uh, hub and nacelle on deck, and then two tower sections on deck. Uh, the second time took us about 12 hours. Taking them down, I mean, we had good weather. We, we, we had no problems at all. I mean, between me and Kevin, the other driver, we, we took them take one down in a day. The vessel then returned to site and offloaded all of the, the components um, into the port of Blythe um, and then remobilized with um, the equipment to remove the monopile. And this was one of the more challenging parts of the decommissioning. There's many lease conditions, but the one of quite important ones, we had to take the turbines down to half a metre minimum below seabed. Talking to um, specialists in, in, in high pressure water cutting, people have done it on other projects. The projects that have been carried out have always had difficulty with completing the cut, ensuring it was complete. And then due to skin friction, um, basically the, what's the existing seabed that's still holding on to the pile or the grout, um, they've gone with a crane and tried to pull it out after the cut. Um, they've had massive difficulties doing that. Um, I think one of the projects, they were stuck there for a number of days with a cut pile, but not enough crane capacity to remove. So we spent a lot of time and effort during the preparation phase at looking at those two processes, ensuring the cut is made, and then having plenty of crane capacity to take the, the, pile, the cut pile back on board. Um, we went through quite a rigorous uh, selection of uh, specialists to undertake the cutting. Um, we were very uh, aware and asking the, the questions they were asked was, how do you know you finished the cut? 
how do you how do you confirm that? And we took a load of um, downhole cameras to, to, to confirm the cut as well. And then we spent a lot of time looking at the crane capacity. The, the thing, the cut pile for memory was um, going to be around about 110 tons of weight. Our crane capacity at that radius was around 200 tons. So whilst we had 90 tons up our sleeve, we didn't want to get into a position where we were having to pull the pile above its known weight and then worry about suffering the pile sudden releasing and then causing shock back to the crane so we took um excalibur barge it already has on on its aft um and a a reaction frame for piling so we use that as our basis to create a reaction uh, beam we then uh, brought in some quite small but quite powerful jacks so actually we turned our little 300 ton jack up into effectively a 600 ton crane capacity jack up so we actually took the most risky part of trying to pull the, the pile out the ground and we gave it to the jack so actually on the jacks it's a lot more controlled um it, it's easy to do it and you've got you know twice the capacity so we did the cut confirmed the cut was made by the, the um the contractor we sent down our uh, cameras confirmed the cut was made as well uh, luckily all the water was running in through the cut so it looked cut to us um we attached our jacks and the came out um, relatively easy. Cutting the pile itself was done from the inside out. By popping this um, cutting tool down the centre of the monopile, um, it's able to cut from the inside out using these, as I said, these high pressure water jets. Um, and then using uh, the moon pool and the Etsu frame on the, the Excalibur, we were able to hold the monopile whilst we were completing this cut. The barge position was another critical part of the operation. Our barge masters, very experienced people, um, similarly to when we first arrived on site to, to take down the top sides, when we arrived back on site to take the, the piles down, they actually positioned the barge by walking it in. So the moon pool, the, the pile came inside the moon pool, um, which gave us the ability to massively increase the radius and the capacity of the crane because it was a lot closer, but also then we effectively encapsulated the pile on three sides. It gave us fantastic access to it using the pile gates and also we developed, or our designers downstairs developed a very good system of, of chaining it back to the, to the vessel. So when we did do the cut and we proved it was free, um, we knew we had plenty of time and, uh, to do the backfill. Something that the team had to look out for were the grout lines that were used for the original installation back in 2000 that sit inside the monopile. So there are eight individual grout lines that finished at various levels um, below the seabed level to to sort of um, install the grout. Obviously, when it comes to decommissioning, you have these uh, grout lines that are steel tubes running down where you want to be doing your internal cutting. Um, so we had to remove all of the, uh, the internal grout lines um, before we were able to complete the main, main cutting. So we designed, um, I say we again, the Royal We, Fugro and uh, the, the subcontractors designed a, um, uh, um, another specialist tool, um, again, ultra high pressure water jetting um, that was able to sort of cut the grout lines individually. Um, at, um, so I think we, we prepared sort of a, a 500 mil cut area where um, there was no obstructions around the whole circumference of the monopile. And then when we came to install the main cutting tool, um, that had a free run um, to cut around the, the full circumference um, and then yeah, be able to, to remove the, yeah, the, the, the monopile below seabed level, which is the big challenge there. 
All that was then left was to return the seabed to the conditions set out in the lease agreement. At the start, that was um, going to be based on a, on a grout or a concrete cap. Um, other discussion myself and Patrick Rainey from RWE, we came up with a, a solution that was better for the environment, so basically a, a, just a rock fill. So we had a, a around, I think it was 500 bags, ton bags of Gabion stone on board. So we uh, finished the cut, ensured it was free, and actually when used the pile as a shuttering system, and we just emptied lots of bags into each, yeah. into each pile. And as we lifted the pile out of the way, the rock that was in contained within the pile just spread out naturally mm. um, and created a, a natural seabed where once there was a, either a hole or a pile. Um, did a piece of design work on there as well to make sure that it wasn't going to scour out of the inside of the monopile. Um, one of the, again, the least conditions that we have is to leave the site as we found it by backfilling it back up. We uh, reinstated the seabed back to its, uh, as close to its original condition as, as was possible. Having successfully decommissioned the two turbines, Tony Stevens says the team were eager to do more. And we obviously got faster and we were all in the mood then to carry on and we'd love it if there's two or three more to carry on and take down. But uh, that was it, we'd done, done the job. Fortunately for Tony, there's going to be a lot more turbines to decommission in the future. According to Bezad, we've got 2,324 installed off the coast of the UK. And if we reach the 40 gigawatt target, it's going to be more than 5,000. So what did the team learn from this first experience? Yes, it, yeah, it was the first wind farm to go up, really, and it was obviously the first one to come down, so plenty of lessons learned. I think our biggest one, we would have a probably a transport barge, one of the things we, we would change, so that our, our operating vessel, Excalibur, would still do the cutting, still the, the rock fill maybe, but actually be an offload some of these items and take them away faster and leave us in the field. Using a transport barge to ferry the deconstructed materials would certainly be important for sites with lots of turbines. For Patrick, the lessons from the first ever decommissioning were all about good data. I think one of the things that, that we found, from my side at least, was really understanding the site and really knowing what you have. Um, knowing your documentation, your as-built, has anything changed throughout the course of the, the 20 years that the site's been there? And also, what impact will any of those things that you find have on your decommissioning? So. Um, I mean, one that I like to use is um, when we removed the nacelle, all of a sudden the hook-on point that we had um, for when you come to the top of the ladder, that disappears with the nacelle. So all of a sudden you then have to have a, you have to find a, a solution that this, this hook-on point has disappeared. And Patrick says it's these small points that can create the real decommissioning challenges that could multiply as the number of turbines and the number of sites increases. I think obviously, as you said, it, it was the first to be constructed, first one to be decommissioned. Um, I think it started everybody talking about decommissioning now. Um, I think there's a big, big challenge ahead of us um, in the next few years from the mid 2020s onwards, when the bulk of the, the offshore wind development will start to be being decommissioned. Um, it's got everybody talking. From, from the actual decommissioning itself, um, we've tested equipment, we've tested methodologies, um, and we've proved that they do work. Um, you know, there are, there are always ways to optimize um, tooling, vessels, programs, planning, um, which we'll work on now, probably taking the lessons from this project. But, you know, we've, we've proved that you can 
build a wind farm, you can operate a wind farm and you can, and you can fully decommission it um, very successfully. Of course, the lessons from Blythe started over 20 years ago, and in the second episode on offshore wind, we're going to explore how innovations in data collection, analysis and foundation construction are supporting this booming industry. Blythe was the, obviously the first offshore wind farm in the UK. It's been a catalyst now for the UK to become one of the leading offshore wind uh, developers globally. But certainly, uh, Blythe has been able to demonstrate that foundations and can be installed offshore and enabled us to uh, to see a, you know, a, a new industry growing. And it certainly is growing and not just in the UK. Here's Bayzad again. Overall for the UK and globally the offshore wind sector the future is uh, very bright. Uh, you know in the UK as I mentioned we have the sector deal now which is you know, a, a commitment from the government to help the offshore wind sector grow um, over the next decade. And what that means is there will be opportunities for the supply chain within the UK. There'll be opportunities for employment as well. Um, so there's going to be a lot of factors that will help the offshore wind sector grow in the UK and globally as well. Um, there's emerging projects um, in the US and Taiwan. Europe, European countries as well are, are still developing projects and then you've got what we I'd call sort of the third sort of wave of countries now looking into offshore wind such as Japan, such as South Korea, such as Australia um, and then again there's who are either establish, establishing projects or establishing the system for developing them and then beyond that there's even more countries now looking into it. And for the UK it all began in Blythe. It's just revolutionised the, the offshore wind industry by demonstrating that a, a project can be commissioned, uh, operated and subsequently decommissioned. And, uh, you know, everybody's now got the confidence to move forward in the industry. And we see a, a, a great long pipeline of potential projects now going out to 2030 and beyond. And that's uh, it's fantastic news for the the UK economy and uh, the contractors and uh, consultants that are involved in, in the whole uh, future pipeline of projects. I think it's really brilliant and uh, you know we're really pleased to be part of it. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, produced by Bernadette Ballantyne and Ross McPherson, edited by John Young and Susanna Pace. Executive offshore wind producer is Rory Harris. Watch out for part two coming next week. If you like this podcast, please share us on social media or leave us a review. You can find us on all podcast apps, including iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Or go to our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media.